The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am so glad today to welcome my own colleague in dietetics, Lori Taylor. She's based in Washington State on Whidbey Island. She's a clinical dietitian with 16 years of experience in patient care, practitioner education, and healthcare consulting. What makes Lori unique is that she trained as a biochemist at the University of California in Berkeley, worked first as a molecular biologist, and then went back and got her master's degree from Stanford University in education, and then in nutrition from Bastyr University. Lori is certified as a specialist in oncology by the Commission on Dietetic Registration, and she has specialized training in functional digestive disorders through the Institute for Functional Medicine. She is trained in sustainable agriculture and holds a permaculture design certificate. She is also a small-scale beekeeper and shepherds a burgeoning urban forest at her home. So, Lori, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You make my life sound very idyllic. It sounds lovely, and the fact that you have married your molecular biology training with dietetics and that you have this hands-on observing in your own garden and with bees makes you my ideal guest, so I'm thrilled to have you. As well as I'm thrilled to have you as a colleague. You know, I think it's very important for more dietitians to take critical looks at the issues that we're going to be talking about today, and that is we are going to be talking about specifically an article that you wrote for a newsletter through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We are both members of a practice group within the Academy called Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine, and in this particular issue, you were exploring the case against genetically engineered foods. You've got 88 scientific references, and I want to go through some of the main points you made in this article, but let me just start out by asking you why your interest in genetically engineered foods. Well, it's interesting. I was asked by this dietetic practice group probably 15 or 16 years ago at the beginning of my career when it was called Nutrition and Complementary Care to write a counterpoint piece about genetically modified foods when they were very new to the market. And I'd always maintained a very uh, longstanding interest in working with nature rather than against nature. And my long, believe it or not, my long experience as a Girl Scout growing up and with a family that camped and did a lot of things outdoors was to really have an appreciation for nature and natural processes. So they asked me to do this article in 2000, I believe it was. There wasn't a lot of research, but there was some research concerning off-target effects of genetically modified or genetically engineered foods in terms of how they are digested or how they affect feed animals. Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine, the new name of the practice group, was doing an article related to genetically engineered foods, and they asked me if I would write a counterpoint piece again. And I said, absolutely, which is one of those things you do in service for your profession, and ended up being a labor of love and then just a labor to really do it well. 
and developed into an article exploring the concerns because they actually couldn't find anybody to write the pro article, even asking some of the sources before. So it was in service to the dietetic practice group. It was probably over 120 hours of work over a winter. So the deeper I got into it, the more I wanted to learn and the more connections I wanted to make between agriculture and chemistry and health and nutrition. And so I found the work really compelling and wanted to bring it to fruition. And once I had done that, then you end up in this situation of, well, now that I know all this, I probably should do something with it and teach other people and establish that there is a valid scientific evidence-based case to be concerned about genetically engineered foods. We should help our listeners understand a little bit about our terminology. So we are interchanging genetically engineered foods with GMOs. Correct. Or genetically modified organisms. Why don't you help our listeners understand the use of those terms? Well, genetically modified organism is the lay term that's used in the press, and then it's also the preferred term of the World Health Organization. And their definition is plants, animals, or microorganisms in which the genetic material has been altered in a way that does not occur naturally by either mating or natural recombination. So in terms of plant breeding that that humans have done for years, they, they differentiate it as a very different practice. In the United States, the preferred term of the Food and Drug Administration is genetic engineering, and that is manipulation of an organism's genes by introducing, eliminating, or rearranging specific genes using the methods of modern molecular biology, particularly the recombinant DNA. So for the FDA, they consider genetic modification to include traditional methods of plant breeding. And the industry often uses that term to its benefit. So I like to use the term genetic engineering to make sure that that we're talking about going in and manipulating using molecular biology techniques, recombinant DNA techniques, techniques that don't occur normally in nature. Okay. So we may use those terms interchangeably, but because we are U.S.-based, we're going to use GE more often. And I really want to clarify, too, that my concerns about genetically engineered foods have to do with plants and animals that can reproduce in the open, in the natural atmosphere. This recombinant DNA technology, molecular biologic techniques, we really rely on uh, to study genes, to make human insulin, albumin, a number of monoclonal antibodies that are used for chemotherapy. I'm probably missing a couple of products in there, but those things are really corralled in a lab setting where you're putting a purified product out for use. We're specifically talking about, I'm specifically talking about in my article about plants and animals that can reproduce or spread their genetic material Mm -hmm. in nature, in the environment, which is a completely different set of risks. I agree with you. And you make very clear that genetically engineered foods have the potential to cause systemic damage to both people and planet, and their continued use would endanger the biodiversity of whole natural foods that are the basis of any healthy diet. I think you summarized that very well. Now, let's talk a little bit about where people might find genetically engineered foods on the market and what they are largely. Because I think, you know, when I talk to consumers, I try to explain that no matter what you might hear, there's like almost a deafening rhetoric that we need these crops to feed the world, when actually these particular food products that come from genetically engineered crops are largely either corn-based ethanol or biofuels, or they go into 
making processed foods, not exactly the kinds of whole foods we want to stay well. Right. You're absolutely correct. Right now, there are 11 genetically engineered crops approved for use in the United States, predominantly our major users. And I use all as much industry and government data in my work as possible. The predominant crops globally are soybean, corn, cotton, and canola. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., 94% of the soy that we grow is genetically engineered and 92% of the corn. So let me just break it down this way. Of 100% of all the soy that's made, 50% of it is exported, 40% of it is used for soybean meal that is made into animal feed, and 7% for soybean oil. Mm. So of, of what's left that we use in the country, the predominance is going to animal feed of soybean meal. And then there's some soybean oil, which we use in food processing and industrial techniques. For corn, 12.5% is exported. Of what remains, 47% goes into animal feed, 30% into ethanol, and 10% into food. The predominance of the corn products going to high fructose corn syrup and sugars. So what we're creating for the human food supply, which is less than 10% of both crops, what's directly feeding humans, is mostly soybean oil, high fructose corn syrup, and sugar. <laughs> the predominance of both corn and soy are feeding either animals in commercialized animal feeding operations or are being used, in the case of ethanol, to fuel automobiles. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of what we are producing, we're not producing anything of a really high nutritional value. What we're producing is the basic ingredients that fuel an economy based on large-scale farms and large-scale of automobiles. Mm-hmm. And in terms of yield, just to answer that question straight out of the box, when I talk to people who don't really know a lot about genetically engineered foods, typically they say, don't we need these foods to feed the world? And with the recent release of the National Academy of Sciences report, the USDA's 15-year data prior to that, and then the Union of Concerned Scientists also looked into this before anyone else, we are not seeing any increases in intrinsic yield, meaning the varieties themselves are not high-yielding varieties because when you genetically modify a plant variety, it has to put a certain level of its energy into making those proteins that the traits, that the genes encode for, and that doesn't translate typically into a more resilient or a higher-yielding plant. Hmm. So those yield increases aren't out there. You do see some slight increases in operational yield, which means you have less loss to pests from mm -hmm. some of the techniques that incorporate an, an internal insecticide. But in those techniques, those operational yield increases are starting to fade as insects become resistant to the few tools that we're using. Mm -hmm. So the majority of engineered crops are engineered to withstand the spray of herbicides and increasingly right. more herbicides as weeds become resistant, or they are engineered so that every cell of the plant contains Bt toxin. Correct. So let's talk a and little. And then some are engineered for both, which is called a stacked trait. So most of the corn that's engineered in the United States is a combination of herbicide tolerance, predominantly to glyphosate, which is the declared active ingredient in Roundup, and also engineered to produce an internal toxin called a BT toxin that's a Bacillus thuringiensis toxin that has been used in organic agriculture but is really engineered in a very different form in the plant. Yeah, let's talk about that because I love that you made that distinction and that often comes up in a debate-type scenario where somebody says, oh, well, we're using BT in an organic system. What's the difference? 
The difference is in that an organic system, this toxin produced by the Bacillus thuringiensis bacterium is sprayed on the outside of the plant. So it's a foliar spray that breaks down with light, is washed off, and soil bacteria break it down. So it experiences some breakdown. The other thing is this protein needs to be eaten by an insect to be activated. It requires the alkaline environment of an insect gut, not the acidic environment of a human gut. On a good day, the human gut is acidic, not always. And the other thing is that the BT protein that's engineered or the different varieties of what they, they are called CRYAB toxins, so there's a crystalline protein, is that it's a truncated version of the protein. It's pre-activated. It doesn't require this alkaline activation to work. And then it's also produced in every single tissue of the corn. All of, instead of being a spray that's on the outside, it's in every single part of the corn, from the pollen to the grains to the silage that's left that cattle eat. And some of the GE corn varieties may express up to six types of BT at one time. In fact, um, I think Monsanto, it's a Monsanto Dow product, I want to say, called Smart Stacks. Mm. And it has, I believe, six BT traits and two herbicide-resistant traits. It's a number of stacked traits. It's really quite high. And the thing to remember is when you're eating this corn, you're consuming more pesticide than before. Right. And you know what's really interesting to me, Lori, especially because you've got this background in GI issues yes. and the function of the GI tract, is I wonder if you can help me understand how that BT might be affecting our own GI tracts. Yeah, this is theoretical at this point in time. There's, we have a couple of studies about BT in humans, but the starting point is that BT is supposed to be in, rendered inactive by our digestion, by an acidic digestive tract. But several researchers found in 2010 that BT was resistant to digestion and also caused an immune response if pH is of 2 or above, which is well within the normal range of human gastric pH. So if you remember with the pH numbers, the smaller the number, the higher the level of acid. But also you have a lot of people taking things like Prilosec and Zantac and all sorts of acid reducers. And people that take acid reducers, which I wish I had the, the prevalence of people that take them, it's quite common. And if you ever go to Costco and see the pallets of Prilosec, those aren't there just for looks. They can change your pH in your stomach to be about 4 to 5. So I, I don't think the assumption that the human digestive tract is really acidic is enough of a protector. And there was a study in Quebec in, I'm sorry, I'm looking at it right now. I don't have the date on it. It's probably less than about 7 or 10 years old, showing that, that this BT toxin was found in the blood of both pregnant mothers and in their babies. So 93% of maternal blood samples and 80% of fetal blood Samples. Now, there was some criticism of how the analytical methods in that study, but how is the BT getting into our system if it's not supposed to be absorbed? But in the insect GI tract, this crystalline protein kills the insect by lysing the intestinal cells of the insect. So whether it does that in humans or not has not been determined because we haven't done those kind of studies on humans. Exactly. But Charles Benbrook, who is a, a pesticide expert who used to work with the Washington State University and has really looked at the changes in BT, his concern is that it probably is broken down into smaller particles, but we haven't done any study on what those are and whether they're actually more toxic to the human GI tract. He feels the real risk is the amount of corn that's fed to dairy cattle and the amount of BT that dairy cattle consume. And when BT 
the insecticide-resistant corn comes to the fresh corn market, which it just had. It used to be in just for, for corn for drying and chips and tortillas. When it comes to the, the sweet corn market, that that exposure will actually be higher than humans have been exposed to so far. So I know that's a complex answer to your question. Basically, the BT toxin is different in genetically modified foods, and assurances that it doesn't affect humans haven't really panned out, but we don't know exactly how it does affect humans. It could be a reason why are we seeing all these increases in food allergies? Why are we seeing increases in GI disorders? Right. We don't know that this is it, but we don't know that it's not Exactly. Exactly. And there are some mouse studies that show when mice eat BT, it makes them allergic to foods they weren't allergic to before. So a rodent study is is more compelling for, as far as an animal compared to any other animal studies we might do, whether it's chickens or bacteria or, or other organisms. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Lori Taylor, a clinical dietitian based on Whidbey Island. She's actually trained as a biochemist. She's worked as a molecular biologist and science educator. She holds degrees from UC Berkeley, Stanford, and Bastyr, and she has a specialty in digestive disorders and oncology. Well, Lori, there's so many directions we can go here. I want to touch on the allergy component because I think probably anybody who was listening, their ears perked up at this because we have seen this amazing increase in, if not outright food allergies, but in food intolerances. We know that among children, for example, we're seeing increases in things like peanut allergy. I remember when I was a kid, everybody took a peanut butter sandwich to school. And now we've got warnings in schools where you know kids can't even bring a peanut butter sandwich into the cafeteria. We now have lines or, uh, you know, if you're at a conference, there's a line for people to get their food that's specifically gluten-free. So we right. know we've seen an increase in allergies. We know we've seen an increase in intolerance. Could there be a link to the way our food has been most recently genetically engineered? I think so. It's it's not just the engineering. It's all the things that go along with it. So when you're studying something like genetically engineered soy that's, that's engineered to be, I wouldn't say resistant, to tolerate applications of Roundup of, for which the declared active ingredient is glyphosate. And we can follow up on why I call it the declared active ingredient in a little bit. But glyphosate is a chemical that inhibits the synthesis of a certain amino acid, which is the building block for protein, but it doesn't do it in humans or animals, but it does do it in bacteria and plants and in fungi. And because we have this very complex microbiome of living organisms in our gastrointestinal tract, and we've seen evidence of this in both poultry and in cattle, that consuming glyphosate changes the bacterial balance in the gut away from healthy bacteria like lactobacilli toward unhealthy pathogenic bacteria like clostridial strains and salmonella strains. And use of feed that is genetically engineered and exposed to glyphosate in feed animals can give them a bacterial profile that makes us more likely to get foodborne illness. There's that change. But what happens to us when we eat glyphosate? It's, It's very likely that it does change our own bacteria. You talked a little bit about gluten-free. I always want to tell people the wheat that we buy in the store is not genetically modified. There have been some reports of sightings of genetically engineered wheat in Montana, in Washington, and in Oregon, which is a major concern because we're a big exporter and the rest of the world does not want genetically engineered wheat. But wheat itself is not genetically engineered. 
We do have new evidence from Alessio Fasano, I think he's at the University of Maryland, regarding that when we eat the gluten protein, in healthy people, in unhealthy people, in all of us, it actually changes our intestinal permeability for some moments by interacting with a protein called zonulin, which regulates the tight junctions between intestinal cells. So the issue now is, if when we're eating wheat, maybe wheat isn't the problem, it's what we're letting in when we open up our GI tract. Mm-hmm. And what if that is glyphosate? What if that is BT or other novel proteins that are produced in this process that we may not fully yet understand? Mm-hmm. So we have to not just look at the, the food as it's engineered, but how it is actually treated and used and processed and delivered. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of things that can happen in there that fundamentally change the chemical makeup of the food and how our body treats it. And I think that we need many more research studies. There is an assumption that these foods have been on the market. Maybe you've heard there's certain rhetoric that always seems to resonate in addition to feeding the world. But there's also this message that, well, these foods never killed anyone. We've been eating them for so many years, and we don't see that consumption of food A led to death. Right. And, you know, my answer to that is, we don't have a control group to compare right. it to, number one. These foods are now so prevalent that I don't know how you would be able to pick apart what caused an increase in illness. We do know that we're seeing more IBS, more irritable bowel syndrome, more irritable bowel disease, more autism. And some people have looked and put some correlation charts together with the rise of genetically modified foods and the, the rise of use of glyphosate with those. And, and I always tell people that those are a correlation. It doesn't imply causation, but it also though is a scientific way of saying maybe we should look at this. That's right. So, Heed I warnings. Mean, there, there are really, really profound changes to our food supply that are multifactorial from economic to environmental to processing to chemicals to the way things are grown. That Sometimes I, I'm in disbelief that most of us can tolerate the food that we eat, because it is so profoundly changed from from what we evolved to eat. And I think another problem that consumers face when we are trying to assess whether or not the foods are safe is the fact that we're told that they've been tested, they are safe, and then if somebody comes up with a study that maybe shows a difference in those conclusions, their science is discredited. Right. And that's a real problem for those of us who want to question and think critically about the information that's put on our plate. Yes, I think people really need to know is that in the United States, there is no pre-market testing required of any kind for genetically engineered foods. And even the submission process to the Food and Drug Administration is voluntary. And what the industry submits is considered proprietary business information and isn't even available for us to look at. So let's say one of the larger agrochemical companies, of which it's not just Monsanto, it's Bear Crop Sciences, and then those two are talking about a merger, Dow and DuPont, which have merged, Syngenta, BASF. The biggest seed holding companies in the U.S. are also chemical companies, and they may do a study internally, but it will never see the light of day to the public. It will be part of a regulatory submission, but it will be blinded from the public. But even the entire submission is voluntary. So there is no pre-market testing for these foods in the United States. In Europe, there is a 90-day testing in rodents, and there's quite a bit of talk that 90 days may not be sufficient, that it really probably needs to be at least 180 days, considering that most of those rats have a one- to two-year lifespan. Mm-hmm. Even the studies that we do post-market on animals in the U.S., specifically cattle, 
and poultry, those animals are culled and killed for our consumption when they're very young. So in terms of looking at long-term effects in more complicated in mammals, we're not going to be able to see it. People who raise the animals aren't going to be able to see it because the animals are simply not living that long before they are sacrificed for food. Mm -hmm. And then there's also scientific bullying. Yes. In fact, there's a really great TEDx talk. I had forgotten the woman's name, and I looked it up again. Her name is Cheryl Atkinson. I think she used to be an investigative reporter for CBS. And she talks about astroturfing. It encompasses a number of things, including the construction of front groups and fake grassroots organizations and people who change and edit Wikipedia entries and and leave commentary on web pages. But What's really interesting is that there's a whole group of people who are really critical of anybody who expresses scientific-based concern about genetically engineered foods, and the thing that comes up is it's anti-scientific or it's pseudoscience, which is a very, very common ad hominem attack of bullying for bringing up this information. For me, science is an inclusive process. We need to look at all of it. We need to look at, even if it's limited, we need to assess it in the terms of its limitations. We need to see what science is there, what's missing, what the conflicts of interest are, and there needs to be complete transparency in all of those processes. And what's happening now is this, it's almost like a scientific jingoism, like you see sometimes with the political arguments getting more polarized. If you are not for GMOs, you either don't know your science or you're anti-science, and and nothing could be farther from the truth. I think I've been able to show that, at least in my work and in my presentations, which are heavily cited about the effects of the insecticides in genetically engineered foods, the effects of glyphosate, some of the risks that we're not looking at. I haven't even delved into allergies and horizontal gene transfer. There's only so much you can focus on and talk about. But with some of the newer technologies, even like RNA interference or the CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, there's a significant risk and worry about even people in the industry about off-target effects. And and nobody really wants to talk about this. We want to we want to reduce it to memes that people share on the Internet from Cybabe or the Credible Hulk or who are people that are either not even identified or don't even have a verifiable credentials. Mm-hmm. But there is a movement afoot to really silence people who are bringing up criticism of genetically engineered foods. And once you look at the economics of where they're used and how they're used in the food supply, how they are basically the cogs in the machine that produces that supports commercialized animal feeding operations and and automobiles. There's a lot of money in that pathway. Mm-hmm. And I think that if people, companies and shareholders have an investment in that, they, they want to keep it. And so this criticism isn't really about science. It's really about upsetting a power and a financial process that's going on and revealing the man behind the curtain. Well, Lori, I want to thank you so much for the intensive research that you've done on this topic. And I want to make sure that we provide a website to your work. Is there one that you want to share with our listeners right now? Sure. SaveYourPlate.net. That's my daughter's sort of slogan, Save Your Plate Before It's Too Late. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Looking at that all these things really do come down to how we connect to and exist on on the earth. I don't have my paper there, but we can maybe put a link to it on the webpage. It's on the Dietitians and Integrative and Functional Medicine website. And just to note, that's what was peer-reviewed at the dietetic practice group level and at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics level. So it it was not a small process, and uh, probably 20 or 40 people reviewed the paper. 
I'll make sure to provide that link to our listeners. Thank you. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Lori Taylor, clinical dietitian, trained as a biochemist at UC Berkeley, worked as a molecular biologist, and now specializing on the impact of genetically modified foods, which is extremely important based on her certifications in oncology and functional medicine and the GI tract. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Lori. You're terrific. Thank you, Melinda, for this opportunity and, and for your show. Mm-hmm.